From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. We have been hearing from people as well who have been out and about who found themselves stranded when the deadline of 3 a.m. came. But we're also hearing that many buses were parked a couple of hours before that. Take a listen to this passenger who was asked by Global News if he was supportive of the strike. Yes and no, because it kind of like destroys people's work ethic. But they got to do what they got to do to survive too, right? Nothing you can really do about it. It's the union you deal with, right? So let's bring on Dennis Agar, Executive Director for Movement, Metro Vancouver Transit Riders. Dennis, thank you so much for taking some time today. My pleasure. What are your thoughts on, we knew that this was a possibility that if they didn't find a deal at the bargaining table during the weekend, that this was going to be the situation this morning. But what are your thoughts on the fact that most buses and C-Bus are out for a 48-hour period? Yeah, you know, it's it's been a real hardship out there. I've been hearing stories of people taking $70 Uber rides and having to cancel medical appointments. Um, I've heard stories of people waiting at bus stops with just no idea what's going on. Um, and I've heard some good stories of, pe- you know, bosses driving their staff to work. But ultimately, this this just really reinforces the fact that Metro Vancouver runs on buses. It's such an essential part of our transportation network and we've we've been underfunding it thus far and and you know unfortunately it's kind of um it's really being demonstrated today. Uh, we heard a few stories when you mentioned Uber and other ride mm. shares off the top, but we're hearing from those companies, or at least from Uber, I think, saying that they've stopped the surge pricing because oh, of, of the strike and because of that. Because, like you said, we were hearing some pretty pretty high bills for people who really yeah. had no other option. Uh, are there other options, though, as far as SkyTrain is still running, Canada Line yep. is still running, and, and, and this is, at this point, is only focusing is only having an impact on buses and sea bus. So is, does that make it at least so so people can try and find some other options? Um, yeah, you know, people are, are finding finding their way to their best ability. West Van Blue Bus is also running, if that um, is running anywhere near you. Um, uh, Evo, it's a little bit fun to watch the map of Evos in a situation like this because they all swarm like bees. <laughs> <laughs> the people are really relying on Evo and Moto, I think, as well. Um, but at the end of the day... Um, you know, the cost of a used car right now is $39,000, and it's the same story for any kind of housing close to SkyTrain. It's it's just way too expensive, and that means that, you know, anyone in the middle class really has to end up relying on the bus. Um, and that's that bus network is bursting at the seams, and, um, you know, transit supervisors, I think, are seeing the, feeling the strain of that bus ridership being so high in the same way that riders are. So, yeah. Are there certain areas that you're hearing from that are that are harder hit? And we're going to be talking to somebody who was at the Surrey, uh, one of the bigger stops in Surrey, when the buses started being parked. Are there certain areas where there really isn't? I mean, if you're in Vancouver, you might be able to to use SkyTrain or Canada Line, but once you get further out, I'm imagining the impact is bigger. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, areas like Newton um, that are just like you know, far enough from the SkyTrain that it's probably too far to walk. Um, and, you know, areas like um, Sunset, uh, places that have a really high percentage of transit riders, like these are areas where, you know, 40 plus percent of commuters take the bus. Um, and so these are the places that are definitely getting harder hit. And, and also, you know, places where people are generally commuting to jobs that need to be done in person. You know, I've heard of a lot of people being able to, to work from home, but that's not a universal experience by any means.
Do you think that the the impacts or the response to this, is it different in that when we've had transit strikes in the past, uh, oftentimes we've been talking about the drivers, the people mm. that, that riders see every day. Uh, this is a strike by the transit supervisors, by, uh, the, by 180 supervisors who one of their main concerns, they say, is that they're not getting paid as much as their counterparts within TransLink. Does that change, do you think, the public's support or lack of support when it comes down to the fact there are people, thousands of people who are stranded by this? You know, I, what I've seen, uh, the change in public support for unions in general, is, is just what's happening across our continent. I think there's just been a real growth in the understanding that, uh, you know, unions can fight for, for salary benefits that ultimately, you know, overflow beyond just the members of that particular union to all of us. Um, and so even just your comment, uh, or the comment that, that we heard at the top of the segment, uh, you know, demonstrated that there's, I think, more sympathy now for uh, labor these days than there has been, um, you know, especially certainly when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> and looking ahead, and again, we are hoping or we will be getting an update from both TransLink and from QP, the union involved in this. So we should hopefully have some updates throughout the afternoon. How concerned, though, do you think transit riders are that this could potentially expand beyond buses and could also target SkyTrain? I think, yeah, transit riders are definitely watching their social media feeds and their news uh, for any any kind of, you know, information about this. Uh, we've got a lot of very recent examples of really long strikes in this province, you know, in, in the Fraser Valley for a couple of months and in, and in Squamish, uh, Whistler. So we're definitely, you know, I think those examples are really top of mind. There have also been calls or certainly people talking about having transit declared an essential service. So even if that didn't mean keeping it at the levels that it would normally be at, that there would still be some level of service for people. Do you think it should be declared an essential service? That's a good question. Um, I understand that there are pros and cons to that. Um, I haven't given it much thought. Uh, I think like you know, lowercase e, lowercase s, like it is an essential service, definitely, um, for all these riders. But in terms of what the implications are, um, you know, that's something that's worth discussion. I know it happened in Ontario, and then it got repealed. And there was a, you know, a bunch of chatter about that. So it's a, it's definitely worth considering. All right. Well, we are going to keep uh, tabs on this and uh, getting updates, hopefully, throughout the afternoon. But Dennis, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for joining the show today. My pleasure. Thank you so much. We are talking about something else that was announced earlier today, and this was from the federal immigration minister, Mark Miller, making the announcement that the federal government is going to cap the number of student permits over the next two years. And this is talking about international students. The federal government saying it will approve about 360,000 undergraduate study permits for 2024, and that's about a 35% reduction from 2023. And he spoke about why this is being done. To be absolutely clear, these measures are not against individual international students. They are to ensure that as future students arrive in Canada, they receive the quality of education that they signed up for and the hope that they were provided in their home countries. It would be a disservice to welcome international students in Canada knowing not all of them are getting the resources they need to succeed in Canada and having them return home disillusioned and disappointed in Canada's education system. Allowing bad actors to continue their operations would be a disservice to all the good institutions who pride themselves 
in providing a top-tier academic experience. Thank you. That was Federal Immigration Minister Mark Miller. Well, joining me now to talk a bit more about this is Richard Kurland, immigration lawyer and policy analyst. Richard, it's so great to have you back on the show. Well, thanks so much. It has been a while since we've talked, and I don't know that we've talked at length about this particular issue, but it's certainly getting a lot of attention. And with this announcement coming out today, what are your thoughts on what the federal government is saying about numbers and international students? Well, no surprise. Uh, And this is one of these instances where they knew full well for years what was going on and did nothing about it. So under access to information, turns out twice a year, the immigration people go and get from all of those schools, the designated learning institutions, compliance information to find out whether students are showing up whether they stay registered or or there are no-shows. And some of these institutions had 90% of non-compliance, but nothing was done. So what's the solution today after a weekend retreat? Well, there's an announcement that a reduction of about 35% uh, of uh, the number of foreign students coming in. But hello, they doubled the total flow. So you double up and then reduce by 35% and expect a a hero's medal? I don't think so. Uh, the number, uh, according to Mark Miller, said that in some provinces, and I think BC was included in this, so he said the reduction in permits would actually be closer to 50% and that BC yeah. is going to come out with its mm. own strategy. And, and what do you think about that number? Well, uh, you know, this really should be BC's call not Ottawa. The same way Quebec controls the number of foreign students entering that province, BC is entitled to do the same. The, the province really that's going to get slammed is Ontario, uh, and uh, the addiction of the provincial government to foreign student capital, uh, so that Ontario taxpayers don't have to subsidize education there, is heroin. So I don't see this battle royale uh, is going to play out between Victoria and Ottawa. This is the premier's office in Ontario versus the federal government. And the solution, though, we don't need war between the titans. It's elegantly simple. All you have to do to fix this is you're already getting the information from every school. If your school doesn't perform kids don't show up or they're non-compliant, your quota, one school, one quota per year, your quota goes down. If you're giving housing to the students, if you have a fantastic track record over the previous three years, your quota goes up. It's not rocket science. So uh, I I think how it's going to work is the political firestorm is going to play out. There's not going to be an agreement between the provinces to slice the foreign study permit pie. Ottawa is going to do it at the cost of Ontario and B.C. Still, that's not going to be good enough because you can't play whack-a-mole with this and go after uh, the students. You've got to control the private institutions, and that's not our mainstream universities and colleges. They get the gold star here. It's the industry that Ottawa, over the last like 
five to seven years has allowed to grow out of control. Even the visa offices were aware this was happening, but their hands were tied. You mentioned housing, and that's something that comes up a lot in this. Would it not also have been simpler just to say to schools, you can accept as many students as you want, but you have to provide housing for them? Bingo. And uh, I was on the hustings for a year and a half when I got the early data about the skyrocketing number of uh, students and foreign workers to this country, an increase in a matter of three, four years of literally three million people. Surprise, they didn't tell the housing industry they're going to add three million people to, to Canada's living population. And guess what? Housing supply problem. So in the fix here, yes, you reward the schools that supply foreign students with appropriate housing uh, as, a, as an incentive to make that capital investment, put shovels in the ground literally, and get the financing through the continued flow of foreign uh, student money. The, the solutions are there. Is there a political appetite to adopt? You mentioned as well non-compliance, and this might be a, a very simple question, but why would someone pay all of that money to go to be an international student and to go to a school in BC and then not show up? Uh, because they springboard. What happens is that they don't go illegal and underground. They're here legally. And then, creatively, they look for other legal immigration solutions. So some of these students uh, end up on work permits as long-haul truckers or in other industries where we need them. They, they come here, don't go to school, uh, do uh, a little uh, a trade at the port of entry at, at the land border and, and, and get hold of a, a new work permit for, for an occupation that, that's, that's in demand. Again, easy fix. <laughs> just, just accept students who can prove they can afford to live and work here. Yes, it's going to be rich kids coming to Canada. I'm not lighting my hair on file because that's in Canada's interests. Uh, like the minister alluded to today, he's saying, uh, if you want me to design a program that's going to deliver Uber drivers, I can, but it shouldn't be the study permit program. The minister's right. So, I mean, the, the, the fixes are elegantly simple here. And when he talked about the, the institutional, the goal of targeting the institutional bad actors yeah. and, and that, does this do that? It can. And, and the example in our Canadian immigration history is the Quebec Investor Program. Same sort of thing. Uh, it turned out there was abuse and it was solved with quotas. Government Quebec gives the banks a quota per bank. The bank in turn gives quotas to its agents overseas. If the agents deliver good files, where we know source of funds and these guys really do what they're supposed to do, next year, more quota. Same thing for the banks overall. Quebec government says, hey, bank, you, you d didn't deliver good files. We're cutting your bank's quota. That's how you motivate the private sector. That's how you hive off the cost of enforcement to the private sector. We shouldn't pay as taxpayers. Make the people who use and benefit from the system financially pay the bill. One other question, and this came up from Mark Miller today, saying he didn't want to scoop BC's post-secondary minister, that Selena Robinson is going to unveil the BC strategy on this in the next couple of weeks. But is there more than, or is BC even going down the right path in, in combating this? 
Yeah, BC, I got to say, B, we're quiet, but we're the leaders in, in what we do here. Program integrity, the choice, the dispersion of the population, the attraction of Francophone immigrants, and even our BC um, immigration business-related programs, stellar. So that's why it's quiet. We don't like to boast, I guess. Uh, but um, I think, uh, well, I think it was kind of unfair to steal the BC minister's thunder in a pre-release, but that's gone. Uh, we have it right over here. We're sending our prospective immigrants to the hinterland of BC rather than the lower mainland. That's where we need to grow most, and that's what the policy does, and it is effective in British Columbia. Richard, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much. It was great talking to you about this. A pleasure. Thank you. Take care, Joe. Right now, though, we are going to talk about some other wage hikes. These ones, well... Not as much back and forth, certainly no negotiations behind closed doors. These are just rubber stamped and the Canadian Taxpayers Federation is taking issue with that. Joining me to talk more about this is Franco Terrazano, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on today. This is something I know that many people will shake their heads at and do this whenever it happens on April 1st. What are we looking at, at though, as far as our, our federal elected politicians, our federal MPs and their pay, uh, pay hikes? Yeah, well, they're getting another one. They're giving themselves another pay raise on April 1. So first, let me just lay the groundwork here, okay? They've been taking pay raise every single year. Uh, no matter of what's going on with their constituents, right? So since the beginning of 2020, think of the hardships that so many Canadians have been enduring, right? Pandemic, lockdowns, people losing jobs, people taking pay cuts, small businesses going under. Fast forward to today, where mortgage payments literally going through the roof. Many people struggling with the price of necessities, like the like just hamburger meat. And regardless, this is going to be their fifth pay raise that they've given themselves come April 1 since the beginning of 2020, uh, you're looking at anywhere between $8,000 extra for a backbench member of parliament all the way up to an extra $16,000 for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. But let me set the stage even more because the current salary are already eye-popping, okay? A backbench member of parliament is raking in 194000 bucks already, and the Prime Minister, Mr. Trudeau, he's already taken in about $389,000 in salary alone. Hmm. And so and when we look at those salaries, and again, I, I think it takes, uh, hopefully, uh, in many cases, it, it does take a, a special kind of person that puts themselves out there to be elected, to, to hold public office, to be the representative. And you hope that your MP is good at this and is in it for all the right reasons. So you want that person to be compensated. But when you look at the increases, or even looking at the base salaries that you just mentioned, that I would imagine is is the the salary that they're getting but doesn't even bring into account the number of perks as well that come with that oh, yeah. job oh yeah i mean look you have a very highly compensated salary right i mean a backbench member of parliament right now is making more than one hundred ninety four thousand dollars. that's more than the premier of alberta makes you know i bring up the premier of alberta because that's where my family lives so i just know it off the top of my head a premier of a major province 
is making less than a backbench member of parliament. Okay. Um, the Hill Times, a, a, a big newspaper outlet here in Ottawa, in the nation's capital, they did an analysis uh, last spring, summer, and found that Canadian MPs are earning the second highest salary of G7 legislatures. Um, I mean, look around the world. You had many MPs, many politicians in other countries who, during the pandemic, said this isn't fair. We're not going to continue to raise our own wages when our taxpayers footing the bill are struggling. I remember New Zealand's uh, former prime minister at the time said that she was going to take a 20% pay cut along with her ministers and even top bureaucrats within the bureaucracy down under. Okay, that didn't happen here in, in, in Ottawa. No, they've taken raises every single year, regardless of how their constituents are struggling. Now, you mentioned the other perks because, oh boy, there are many. You got this big salary. You got a, you got a pension. You got a severance if they don't qualify for a pension. They have a transition fund, thousands of dollars they get to tap into after leaving office. All of it, every single penny of it, paid for by their struggling constituents. And how do they calculate the number? And I and I know you mentioned this when, when putting out these numbers earlier today that the actual the the, the final pay numbers they, they haven't been released. But this is kind of what we've seen, or you're able to see how it's been calculated in the past. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, we always sound the alarm around this time of year, right? And we've been uh, quite accurate in the recent years. And, and how it works is by the legislation every year on April one. They get an average increase uh, associated with the annual increase in larger corporations in the private sector. Okay, so companies with like 500 or more employees, they take the average and that's what MPs are getting. So if you look at the government data that was published online, they're looking uh, around a 4.2% increase. Okay, that works out to an extra 8100 bucks for an MP. That would bring their salary after April 1 to $202,000 a backbencher, folks, okay? A minister, uh, they're going to get an extra $11,900 based on our estimates. That would bring their salary after April 1 to just under 300,000 smackers. Not a bad gig if you can get it. And the prime minister, um, he's going to collect about $16,200 extra based on our estimates, which would bring the prime minister's salary just over 405000 bucks. Hmm. Uh, interesting uh, numbers when you, when you look at it. And now I, I think people will be asking this as well. Well, have they ever stopped the, these pay hikes? Have they ever done, as you mentioned, some other leaders in other countries or other elected officials? Is it is there a precedent or is there an example of when they've actually stopped this? Oh, I'm sure. I'm glad you brought that up because there sure is. It turns out it's not rocket science for members of parliament to change the law. Uh, so back in 2010, under the Harper government, they froze the wages between uh, about 2010 to 2013. And that was actually in response to the 0809 recession, right? So they said, look, everyone's struggling. We've got this deficit issue. Uh, we can't just keep padding our pockets with higher pay every single year. And, you know, that brings me into a very important part. You know, symbolism, leadership at the top is very important. I don't want to downplay it. But there's actually a bigger issue at play here, okay? So we have a $40 billion deficit. About half of the government's day-to-day spending goes to fueling the bureaucracy. We've seen large increases in the bureaucracy over time, over recent time, which is what the big hit to taxpayers really come from. Now, before they went on strike last year, one of the big federal government unions actually pointed to the annual pay raises that members of parliament have been giving themselves 
as a reason that the bureaucracy should get more cash from taxpayers. So if any politician is actually serious about ending the wasteful spending, reigning in the bureaucracy, balancing this $40 billion deficit of a budget, they're going to have to make sacrifices themselves so they can then sell savings within the bureaucracy, which needs to be done. Does that ever, when you talk about the, what happened in, in 2010 as a result of the recession, the downturn, the, the, the couple of years before, I do remember that as well. I know it was, by some, it was called a distraction. There, there was a lot of talk about that. But did it actually, when it happened, did it actually go ahead or did they donate the increases? No, they froze the, they froze the wages. No, they did. They froze the wages. I mean, I mean, kudos there. Uh, you, you've also seen other politicians in Canada in, in recent years take freezes. In Ontario, those provincial legislatures, uh, legislators, sorry, they, they continue to freeze their wages. They said they're going to freeze their wages again this year. Uh, you know, just before the pandemic in Alberta, again, the premier over there took a 10% pay cut. His MLAs took a 5% pay cut. So it's been done before. It can happen again, and it should happen. Well, thank you so much, Franco, for joining us and bringing these numbers forward today. I know they will get a lot of reaction. So thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Well, thank you for having me on and have a great day, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.